and welcome to another edition of A Damn Fine Podcast, the podcast that's re-watching, re-enjoying, re-analyzing, and getting ready for Twin Peaks as Season 3 is kicking off later this year in May. We're all very excited. I'm Ron Richards. I'm here with Tom Merritt. Is it May yet? Not it's, it's not quite. We're almost there. It's almost, the end of April. We're almost there, Tom. We'll, soon. It's weird. Like when we went through the the a widely acknowledged worst episodes of Twin Peaks, it wasn't close enough to get super excited. But now that we're back to better episodes, it I'm getting super excited. It's all it's all peaking at the right moment. I don't know if that's the right Maybe way to put it. It's all working. Well, what what is happening at the right moment is our welcoming our guest, uh, Mallory O'Meara, a screenwriter and filmmaker, joining us. How you doing, Mallory? I am also super excited. Twi- Welcome to TwinPeaks.com has a daily countdown for how many days are left until the new season that I check every day. Oh wow! I didn't even know that. I should. I gotta bookmark that. That's awesome. Oh, oh yeah. Cool. Well, so Mallory is on the show, actually. It's, so I wanted to kind of tell how we got connected. A uh, good friend of mine for years, Brea Grant, uh, uh, it was, I guess, she started watching Twin Peaks. And I said, hey, you should listen to my podcast. And then she said, hey, you should have my friend on your show. And connected us. And we chatted <laughs> and uh, found out that you, that, <laughs> that you were quite the Twin Peaks fan. So tell us, when did you get into Twin Peaks? How did you find yourself uh, enamored with this wonderful TV show? Uh, yeah, I am sort of notoriously obsessed with Twin Peaks. I, I sort of have a problem. Most of my apartment is decorated with some sort of Lynchian decor. I have a Firewalk With Me tattoo on my left hand, and I have the owl symbol tattooed on my uh, left uh, ring finger, uh, as if I'm married to Twin Peaks, which I'm totally okay with. <laughs> um, a, a director that I was working with on a project said to say, that we can't create together unless you get into David Lynch. And I had never seen any David Lynch before. And I was like, all right, sure. Me down this road. I, and within about a couple of months, I had seen a racer head, wild at heart, blue velvet, Mulholland drive. And I was completely obsessed. And he's like, all right, well now you have to watch all of twin peaks. And I did. And I think it took me about a month to watch both seasons. I just inhaled them and became completely enamored. And now I have a, have a Twin Peaks addiction. I actually, that's where I went for Christmas last year. I took myself up to Snoqualmie and stayed at the, at the Salus Lodge, which is the exteriors of the Great Northern, and uh, spent my Christmas in Twin Peaks. Wow, that's, that's commitment. That's fantastic. <laughs> it was totally amazing. Tom, Tom, you've been up to Snoqualmie, right? I have, yeah. Okay, I good. did a, a dual Twin Peaks Northern Exposure tour uh, one year and kind of oh, nice. pulled around. Yeah, nice. yeah. No, I, I've I've been several times as well. Every time when I would go up to the uh, Emerald City Comic Con, I would always uh, make sure I have an extra day before or after the convention to go drive out and go look at the falls. And I actually attended a wedding uh, at the at the hotel, so that was that was a trip. So that was amazing. <laughs> Love it up there. Oh, when when so you were exciting. at that wedding, did you feel like you were one of the extras in the background? of a Twin Peaks scene because that's the kind of thing that shows up all the time. Well, it's we funny, even see it in this episode. It's funny because I, I, I wasn't mentally prepared for it because I actually didn't know that's where the wedding was. Uh, what happened was is my friend lived in Issaquah, uh, Washington, which is the town, yeah, yeah. which is you know right right by Snoqualmie. And we so we, we flew into Seattle and we went to our hotel and then we went to his house in Issaquah and then we went to the, straight to the hotel and we parked and we were early and one of my friends was like oh well there's, there's a great view over here let's go take a picture of it and we walked over and I turned to the left and it was the shot of the waterfall and I nearly <laughs> I nearly vomited all it of was, a sudden you hear <laughs> boom 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 I'm pretty sure oh I, my gosh <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure I teared up a little I couldn't and I was freaking out of course I was with people who aren't Twin Peaks fans so they didn't really understand what was happening isn't that the worst yeah. <laughs> 
So because I keep, I went out, the whole time I was up there, I kept forgetting that it was actually like a hotel that normal people go to, just yeah, because yeah. of the beautiful waterfall. And the, all these people are taking pictures of the waterfall. Like you don't get it. We're <laughs> northern. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Did you Bob, did you Bob. go to the Keanu Lodge down? That's about an hour and a half south where all the interiors were shot. Oh no, oh, I wow. didn't. Wow. So you really? I mean, so yeah, I went to the I went. I've been to the hotel. I've been to the falls. I've been to the diner, but that's where I stopped. You went to where the interiors were shot. Shot, which is the Keanu Lodge, which is an hour and a half south, and it was illegal for me to be there, but it was worth it. Wow, <laughs> that's quite the trip. So all, yeah. all in all, how many days were you were you up there for? I was only there for a weekend. I saw, I, I stayed at the Great North. Uh, <laughs> the I great saw North. the interiors. I saw Laura's Lodge. I yeah. Laura's Log. I saw the diner. I saw Ronette's Bridge. I went to the Fat Trout Trailer Park. I went to, found the stretch of road where the Welcome to Twin Peaks sign is in the beginning. Mm-hmm. I'm probably forgetting a couple. Wow. Because I'm very excited. That's quite the trip. That's great. <laughs> yeah. But you know what's really funny? The thing that made me feel most like I was in Twin Peaks was just driving around at night and listening to Angelo Badalamenti and just like seeing the pines. And that just made me, it felt so Twin Peaksy that I just kept like shrieking with joy every few minutes. (laughs) Did you run into any owls? No. Oh my gosh. I actually specifically went driving at night hoping that I would see an owl. Yeah. That's all I wanted. Well, that's very, very cool. Well, so you're clearly you're, you're clearly a diehard Twin Peaks fan, so it's great to have you on the show. Um, do you want to dive into this episode and help us uh, navigate our way through it? Oh yes, this is a very interesting episode. <laughs> I, was, I was actually, I'm actually really, ha- I'm really excited that you're on for this episode, Mallory, because I, I was saying to Tom before we started recording, we've, we've, we're, I feel as if this is the first episode where we're coming out of the bad episodes of season two. Bad arcs that end in this episode, and I would also like to point out that this episode was written and directed by a woman, so yes. I'm excited to be. Exactly. Exactly. One. Yeah. So this is so this is season two, episode sixteen. Or I forget what the what the count episode is, Tom. Do you remember what that? What it's that? episode twenty three. Is the official title of the right. show. It is the twenty fourth episode of the series. Right, exactly. Um, and and it is the German title. For this Very complicated. I know. The German title for this episode is "The Condemned Woman." Uh, and it originally aired on February 16th, 1991. And as Mallory mentioned, it was uh, written by Trisha Brock and directed by my favorite Twin Peaks director, Leslie Linka Gladder. Uh, get ready to get gladdered. Get ready Heck to, yeah. And there, 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 <laughs> there is a gladder moment in this episode, which I'm very excited for. But um, uh, And in terms of the ratings of this episode, uh, this is a low point. It's not the lowest point, but it is still a low point. Uh, 7.8 million viewers. Uh, and in terms of the other shows on at 10 o'clock on Saturday on February 16th, Twin Peaks came in dead last. Carol, uh. Carol and Company, hosted by Carol Burnett, holding strong at 20.2 million. Uh, CBS comes back on the scene with Cooks and Kitchen Capers, which got 13.1 million viewers. Oh, wow. That hurts. <laughs> Losing to Carol Burnett, you kind of feel like, oh, you know, it's a grand tradition of comedy. Losing to Cooks and Kitchen <laughs> Capers, that's unfair. That's embarrassing. Yep. And Twin Peaks came in Yikes. last, dead last, at 7.8 million. And before we get into it, I think it's important to note to give kind of the the situational situation. This is uh, the last episode before Twin Peaks goes on a six-week hiatus. So what happened was is that after the Gulf War started and the ratings slipped, uh, ABC made the decision to 
basically cancel Twin Peaks. Uh, and it was going to end here at February 16th, 1991. And then there was a massive letter writing campaign, which convinced ABC to bring it back at the end of March and let it run through the rest of its course, albeit at a uh, broken up kind of release schedule that comes back in March and April, goes away for all of May, and then they finish it up in June. So uh, if we were here in 1991, this would be our last taste of Twin Peaks for six weeks. So Oof. I think that that's an important note to remember when we get to the end of this episode. Ugh. Can you guys imagine if this was the last you got? Right? <laughs> Ugh. That would be as tragic as Firefly. Ugh. It really would be. It'd be horrible. Anyway, all right. So let's dive right into it. So we open up in the sheriff's office, and we got a close-up of uh, a little owl figurine in glass. I was going to say the owl, the owl right at the start with Wyndham Earl is pretty cool. Well, yeah, the owl next to the chessboard, which is the nice, I feel yes. like, yeah, Twin Peaks, Wyndham Earl, etc. And uh, it's Sheriff Truman and Cooper listening to a recording of Wyndham Earl, and Wyndham Earl is telling Cooper that it's his move, that Cooper seems distracted, and that's very bad because there are grave stakes at hand. Uh, and as we pull out, we see that on Truman's desk is the death mask of, uh, of Carolyn, uh, and which is all very creepy as Cooper is bringing Truman up to speed on that. And Cooper says, you know, I need to make, make my next move uh, before Wyndham makes it for me. Uh, and so at that point, then they decide to call in Pete to get some help on the chess move and also to call the newspaper oh, Pete. to get the newspaper ready to print his move. And then uh, the music kind of swells as Cooper kind of looks longingly at Carolyn's death mask and he tells Truman she was the love of my life. Ugh, heartbreaking. Oh, feelings. Yes. Well, so I, many I, feelings. I think it's really, really interesting that the um, idea of Cooper being super distracted is juxtaposed, or I guess sort of paired up with getting really Twin Peaksy now. You know, he's wearing plaid. You know, we have that great shot at the end of the episode where he's like learning how to fly fish in his bedroom at the Great Northern. And you see, you really see him sort of starting to uncouple himself from the FBI life and, you know, love his new his new calm self in Twin Peaks right Twin Peaks is changing him embracing him oh it totally it it's, totally is and he's embracing and, it yeah and not to spoil it for people watching the first time through but sucking him in yes oh yes ooh ooh <laughs> hey so, so so they they end the scene with with calling for help to Pete and so that cuts us over to the Martell's house where where Pete is on the phone telling Lucy that he's on his way uh, and then he is at the, he's at the kitchen counter and he's pulling out some plates and we turn and we see that he is serving Catherine and then Andrew who are at the table and we get a little gladder moment here as we thought Pete was by himself but turns out there's Catherine and Andrew I like that. Um, mm -hmm. And then uh, Andrew, uh, Andrew gets his breakfast from Pete, and it's in the shape of a dog face, uh, which then makes them start giggling like schoolboys. <laughs> it's so cute. It's so cute. <laughs> and it, that pisses off Catherine. Uh, and then Pete goes off to the uh, to the sheriff's station, and then Andrew and Catherine chat a little more. And Andrew says he's leaving for Paris to talk to investors about Ghostwood. And uh, and then of course, you know, the, at this point, I'm wondering, does Josie know about Andrew yet? And sure enough, Josie walks, Josie walks in. And <laughs> Josie gets, gets gladdered. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so I um, have so much hate for Josie. She is my least favorite character. So obviously this is a favorite episode of mine for Libreasis <laughs> we can talk about later. But she's just like her like crappy little faint just like pisses me off in the scene. 
She's definitely, I mean, like, the, the entire theme of this episode, at least from what I noticed, is Josie kind of uh, just totally wild and hanging out on a branch all by herself, you know? Like, she's over-emoting, and basically she's getting backed into a corner, but, you know, but the way Joan Chen plays it is just way more melodramatic <laughs> than I think it needs. Oh, my God. Jesus Christ, that woman could make her McDonald's order sound melodramatic. It's just so... The thing that bothers me so much about Josie is that she's actually, when you look at her objectively, she's a really fascinating character, and she could be a really cool character for female empowerment. You know, she worked her way up in Hong Kong and, like, you know, got herself out of this crazy situation, and she's bat- she's in America and hiding out and has, like, you know, got this great fortune that she's built herself. But she's, like, so simpering and whimpering and lame that, like, you just, I just hate her so much. Well, and in the early episodes, it felt like that was a put-on, right? Like, once you yeah. find out what's really going on, you're like, oh, you play that part so people underestimate you so you can get the upper hand. But then when she hits the skids, you find out, oh, maybe you weren't it's playing just like that her. part. Yeah. She just sucks. Yeah. Well, I'm also like really protective of Harry and so like, oh yeah. Mad. Don't want him. I don't well, do yeah. that. That was actually the thing that made me turn against Josie the first time through watching this was, yeah, was the fact that she she was dragging Harry down. And I'm like, no, Harry's better than this. Stop it. Harry, open your eyes. Come on. <laughs> oh, I know. Uh, well, that's what, uh, well, we can talk about this later in the episode, yeah. but I'm also, I'm very pro Harry, but I'm also, Albert is one of my favorite characters. Oh, so I, get, yes, yeah, I love Albert in this episode. In, in the pantheon of legends, Albert is, is, is at the top, but uh, yeah. But, uh, but before we move on, I do want to note, um, I got to say, I, while I'm not a big fan of Andrew Packard, this scene of Andrew and Pete joking around really gave me a sense of ca- camaraderie and family. Oh, yeah. And, and like for a moment, I really kind I mean, I don't get me wrong, Pete is also in the pantheon of Twin Peaks legends. He's a goddamn American treasure. But um, mm-hmm. this this scene, you got a sense of, you know, Pete and Catherine are have been together and Pete and Andrew are brother-in-laws and, and it's that kind of, you know, that and he's back to life, which is weird. But it's just that, that sense of family that we never really saw from the Martells, that that third piece and seeing Pete and Andrew play around like that really made me like them that much more. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So yeah, he, he definitely right is thing. a missing part of their dynamic. You yeah. can see that after, uh, or uh, Andrew's definitely the missing part of their dynamic. And you can kind of see like looking back to see how, how bad things have been without Andrew around with just Pete and Catherine and how, how overbearing. Cause right now they're both kind of bearing the per bitchiness, but if you can just kind of all fall apart and become miserable. It's like Catherine, Pete, and Andrew are id, ego, and superego. Yes. Yeah. That's that's very good, Tom. Wow, you're smarter than than me. I like that. (laughs) I'm good at making up things that sound deep. Yeah, exactly. There you go. So speaking of Harry Truman, we cut back to the sheriff's office where Truman is looking longingly at the Seattle newspaper about the uh, murder of the Asian man. Uh, and just in time for Hank to come in on crutches with Hawk and Truman. Yeah, and Hawk kicks his crutches out. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so Tr- Truman informs him that he's being charged with the attempted murder of Leo. And then Hank gets right to work and says, you know, how about instead of, uh, con- you know, kind of charging me, why don't we, why don't we, uh, I propose a trade. I'll give you information about the murder of Andrew Packard. And uh, Truman says, no deals. And at that point, Hank drops the bomb. Yeah, that- screw you, Hank. <laughs> and then Hank drops the bomb that Josie was involved, which really knocks Truman out. But before Truman can be totally out, as you mentioned, Mallory, Hawk knocks the crutch out from Hank uh, under him. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My man. Gee, sorry. <laughs> 
And then, <laughs> oh, I love it. And then, of course, this entire scene is punctuated by Truman punching his hand in anger. <laughs> True. Well, that's like, as much as this aspect of Truman's character frustrates me, it makes does make me love him more that he's like this wonderful, like stoic righteous you know symbol of all that is just and good in the world but you know Josie's his Achilles heel and it makes you so frustrated for him but you also kind of get it yeah, yeah. Um, Truman is authentic yes he, oh, he's, yeah. he's always who he is there's no deception there he is one of the people that I'm really heartbroken is not going to be in the third season yeah me too you, you know I'm me too and I've, I've thought about it and actually uh, I've talked a lot of one of our other guests that have been on the show Connor Kilpatrick he and I talk about it a lot because we both are big fans of Michael Ankeen as Truman and I always say oh man I'm so mad Truman's not gonna be on season three but then Connor reminds me that he's retired living in Hawaii and he's probably not that upset it's <laughs> Yeah, fair enough. I'm well, sure it's, Michael. And it's not even. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, I, I don't know. It's not even like as much as I like him as a character or him as an actor, and I'm sad to see him not be part of the part of it. You know, I just want to know what happened to Drew. Well, I, right. I, I mean, well, and that's now we're start. We're getting into speculation about season three, but I'm really curious if we're going to dive in and they're not going to acknowledge anybody who's gone, or if we're going to get, yeah. you know, kind of like the the Harry S. Truman Memorial parking spot or something. You know what I mean? Like, there's going to be some explanation of what happened to the missing. Died characters. in a fishing accident or yeah. something. Oh man. Oh, I really hope. I hope. I I really, really, really hope so. Just because he's so beloved. Yeah. And yeah. I hope we get at Plus least figure just, out what, I mean, what happened to him. I think of it as Cooper and Truman, like yeah. they're, they're, oh yeah, they're a team. And it's it's going to be that's. Oh gonna, god! And I think of yeah. it. I think of it not to get too kind of sentimental, but Truman is very much a lot of the heart of the show. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. So uh, we'll see. We'll see. We, we're almost there, but. Um, but also talking about beloved characters uh, outside in, in the conference room at the sheriff's station, Albert is talking to Cooper, and he's, confir- oh. he's confirming that the bullets uh, <laughs> that were found in the Asian man match the bullets that were shot that shot Cooper, and that they all match Josie's. Fuck you, Josie. <laughs> they all match Josie's gun, and then Albert wants to take. <laughs> Albert's coming for you, baby. <laughs> yeah. And so, but uh, he wants to arrest Josie, but Cooper says, "No, I'll take it slow. Let me talk to her. Maybe she'll confess." But Albert doesn't believe it. In fact, he says, "Maybe she'll go." Grow wings and join the circus. Grow wings and fly, fly. <laughs> yeah, in traditional Albert fashion. But again, that because I hate Josie so much, I love Albert so much. It does make me incredibly satisfied that his work is what ultimately proved. I mean, we knew Josie was guilty from the get go, yeah. but it it makes me happy that he's the one who proved that. No, this is really happening. Sorry, Harry, you can't be blind any longer. Yeah. Here's the evidence. And now, yeah, and. Again, it's a triumvirate, right? Albert's trying to get Cooper to do what is obviously the right thing, and Cooper's trying to protect his friend. Right, and this is this is the fatal, yeah. the, the fatal the fatal flaw of Cooper is his loyalty to Truman in this, in, especially yeah. in this case we've seen it before, where the 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 bromance of Truman and Cooper or Trooper, as I like to call him. Um, you know, some, <laughs> oh my God, that's the cutest. <laughs> and sometimes it gets in the way of 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 being a good lawman, you know, on both sides. So. Uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. So that, then we cut away from this and we go to the Great Northern where Audrey is... Uh, Here ta- comes Dreamboat Express pulling into the Great Northern. <laughs> so hey Audrey is, tra- Audrey is attempting to learn the hotel business and she is uh, now going to be working in the concierge, of which the current concierge worker is not a big fan of it. Uh, and she gets a, a little lip from him. Uh, I kind of love that, though. I kind of love him being like, hey, hey, rich, privileged white chick. Yeah. Here's what's up. <laughs> sure, so sure. Like, my, I guess my job's easy. Fine. 
<laughs> but so, and in her first task as uh, working at the concierge desk, she almost blows it as a very handsome hotel guest comes up asking for some help, and it is none other than Billy Zane. If I could whistle right now, I would. <laughs> and I feel no shame for this because Audrey Horn and Sherilyn Fenn is like, you know, the, the constant dreamboat, one of the constant dreamboats in Twin Peaks, and, and we don't get too many of them on the late, uh, like for us hetero ladies. Yep. So seeing Billy Zane come in and just be a total babe, even though he has the most distracting hairpiece in the world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, is, it was the style so at the time, yeah. I well, guess. Oh, I mean, my God. I mean, he's very – and for the, for our listeners who don't know who the, the immortal Billy Zane is, uh, he his most notable role was the bad guy in Titanic. Uh, he was also a punchline in the Zoolander movie. And, uh, he was in the Phantom. He was in the, he that was the, weird, in fact, weird he, movie that no one remembers. <laughs> I remember the Phantom, the Ring. I know, I know that for sure. He, um, so he, he was the, he was the Phantom. And then hit my favorite role of Billy Zane's was one of Biff's gang in Back to the Future. Yes. Oh my gosh. And and he is doing a great job of in Twin Peaks of being the handsome uh, industrialist construction you know magnet who is you know uh, treasured son returning home to Twin Peaks um, and in fact he's doing we find this out as he's informed uh, Audrey that he's checked into room 215 and then he needs some help uh, getting you know all of his bags couldn't fit from his jet to in, in the van so they need someone to go out to the airport to pick him up and so we get the sense that he is rich and uh, and then he realizes it's Audrey and he shares a memory that he has a photo of her in a dirt which is a little creepy let's be real a little creepy a photo, let's be real a photo of Audrey when she was 10 dressed up like Heidi in a dirndl skirt uh, it's the way he's looking at her now as he says that that makes it oh, a little creepy oh absolutely and him like closing his eyes and being uh -huh. like mm, yes I can picture it right now you're like how many times have you pictured that Billy Zane how many times now I will admit that that he is um very handsome in this scene and even I I mean like you know you said you, uh, Mallory you said there aren't a lot of love interests for you hetero ladies as a hetero male there are many many ladies for us to be attracted to but I immediately can acknowledge the handsomeness of Billy Zane in the scene where I was like oh wow this is turning it up a notch so uh, oh heck yeah well, it crosses also, preference boundaries it yes, really it does, does. Yes. it really does yeah <laughs> Well, and I also love the fact that, like, from a from a character development standpoint, like, this is the point where, I mean, you've seen Audrey start to really change and be less of an, like, an annoying little girl throughout the entirety of the show. But I feel like this is actually, and as, as great and fun as this scene is and good as it is on the eyes, I think this is truly the moment where you start to see Audrey grow and mature as a person yeah. because her... Her interactions with his with John is Jack that Jack Jack John Johnson. Jack, his name is John Wheeler. Go, yeah, his name is John. Yeah. John. Uh, it's later in the episode. John Justice Wheeler, but he goes by Jack. John Justice Wheeler. Yeah. yeah so yeah. Jack, her interactions with Jack are very similar, but also fundamentally different from her interactions with Cooper in the beginning of the season. Where now she isn't totally bowled over, even though this guy's a total babe. She is putting her own her, her own needs and her own desires and the things that she needs to get done as more of a priority she's told you could tell she's totally attracted to him but she's not falling all over herself she's much more in control and i think that this is actually like a super key character moment for her and actually when i start to like her a lot more well and and i i totally agree and you you even notice it in her appearance and, and i noted here in my notes that her hair over the span of shooting the show her hair has grown out now it's longer and it's a little more um uh i don't want to say conservative but mature 
And, yeah, but oh, you're definitely. Yeah, and, yeah. and she's and she is dressed. You know, she's dressed professionally. She's dressed there for work. She's just gotten her father through a psych a, a psychological oh God, break <laughs> uh, episode, right? And so like you're and and she's you know kind of her her crush on Cooper kind of hit its climax and isn't going to happen. So she's you know clearly moving on by flirting with Bobby and things like that. So yeah, I think you're right. A, a corner has been turned by Audrey, and this this kind of helps it right into the arms of Billy Zane, which is great. Um, Which I totally don't blame her. Yeah, but so they leave us. In Get it, girl. They leave us in suspense as to who Billy Zane is uh, as he walks away before she can find out who he is. Uh, but then she opens the letter that Wyndham had left her, uh, and she receives a torn piece of the poem that Leo was writing, uh, along with a note asking to attend the gathering of angels at the Roadhouse at 9:30 p.m., uh, where she can save the one you love. Uh, so ominous. Wyndham Earl is playing. Is his plan is you know is is happening. What a different time it would be to get a creepy handwritten note from some dude and be like, yeah, I might as well check this out. Why not? <laughs> well, it get, we get to that later. But, yeah, remember that thought. But uh, <laughs> Also, who's the one she loves at yeah. this point? Yeah. Is it Billy Zane? Oh. <laughs> so, speaking of love, we go over to, we go over to Big Ed's house. And <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Oh, well, <laughs> I, have, so I have a lot of thoughts and feelings about the the. the the you know the quad nightmare that is Big Ed and Norma and Hank and um, yes. Nadine and Mike and, and Mike don't forget Mike and Mike but so Mike. so Big Ed is Big Ed is rearranging the knickknacks that were destroyed when Nadine beat up Hank which is I thought a nice little call out um, so great and then Nadine comes in and she she's got she's home from school early Big Ed wants to know what's the matter uh, we get the signifier that this is an important scene because the Twin Peaks Twin Peaks theme music starts playing right um, which is always a good a good note and she's, I do the the same thing in my own life. Yeah. I just start playing it as soon as anything important yeah. starts to happen. And Keep she, it nearby. And she basically explains to Ed that she and Mike had a magical night together when they were on that wrestling trip and that it's time to call a spade a spade and that Nadine and Ed are breaking up. And, uh, and he, Ed immediately gets a raging boner and rushes away. Yeah. Well, I got. I, I was so throughout as we've been analyzing this, we've come. Tom and I have come to the conclusion that Big Ed and Norma are the are the, are the couple that deserve to be together the most. Oh fuck yes! Right? Five thousand percent. That's literally one of the most the things that I care about most in the new season. Like, uh, I want to find out about everything. Yeah, sure, whatever. Number one priority are Ed and Nate Norma together. Yes, yes, and and, and uh, Nadine and Mike together. Yeah, exactly. But sure, I, Nadine deserves happiness. Whatever. She deserves some happiness, absolutely. As long as it's off screen a little more often. In terms, yeah, of, yeah, in yeah. terms of watching the scene, I feel like this is the best possible outcome that Ed could ever hope for. Oh my God! Yes, you could see, and it's funny because he looks a little horrified, but you can see. I think that this is in this moment where finally he realizes that he's finally free. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think he's just in shock more than horror, right? He's just yeah. doesn't believe that that really just happened. There is a still so a little easy. bit of knife twisting where Nadine says, "Well, you and Norma did it." Yeah. So there's like that that part of Nadine that isn't crazy that is a little bit angry with Ed. I think. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I could totally see that, but you can also see, I mean, it's, I think everybody in their life has been there in this, there's either somebody you want to break up with or something that you don't want to do. And somebody else calls and calls it off before you. And you're just like, Oh my God, 
Yes. That, that like relief. that amazing shock, shock yeah. and relief. Yeah. It's that appointment you don't want to go to and then the other person cancels and you're like, ah, it's like, I'm free. It's like, can, you get, can, yeah, free. can you get out of it scot-free basically? Yeah. And so without oh, hurting yeah. anybody. So it's, it's, this is a great development. And, and so, yeah. So, uh, but before we can celebrate this development, we pop back over to the Martells where Cooper is visiting Josie to, to uh, ask about what happened in Seattle with Jonathan's death, Ugh. the Asian man's death. And of course, Catherine is eavesdropping. And Cooper explains that he's a friend of Harry's and that he's giving Josie a chance to explain herself and she won't she won't give an inch so Cooper finally gives her some tough love and he says this is the end of it there are no options she has to be at the station by nine o'clock tonight or he comes to find her um, which leads to my question why doesn't he just take her now well it's for it's for it's for um, Harry you know give her some time to get herself ready and pack her bags and right, you know I'm going to give you many, many hours to mull over. Like, like I feel like this is an urgent moment that maybe we should go to the station right now. I don't know. Oh, totally. But, you know, obviously Cooper has been has bungled the entire Josie thing forever. Yeah. And seriously, uh, Ron, how could Catherine then taunt her about having to meet with Eckhart if yep. she was taken in right away? True. Yeah. So, of course. I mean, the whole episode hinges on the <laughs> fact that the, 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 this time period that we're now in happens. And of course, you know, and, and this begins what I what I believe is the horrible manipulation of Josie by Catherine and Andrew. Uh, to that I feel to... no pity for this chick. <laughs> None. So, so Catherine comes in and she's she's asking Josie what's going on. And Josie does not feel well. Um, and Catherine tells her about her latest conversation with Mr. Eckhart. And uh, Josie says she thinks Mr. Eckhart is going to kill her but Catherine saying that she's like well I wonder what his reaction is going to be when he finds out Andrew's alive you know insinuating that he will blame Josie um, and so Josie starts to physically freak out you can see her she her hands are moving she's very uh, tense and very you know unsettled and uh, Catherine en encourages Josie to go tell Eckhart the truth and as she does she looks for her keys which she seems to have misplaced in the bookcase right next to this gun this lady gun <laughs> yeah. first off and Josie grabs the gun and hugs it Ah, <laughs> oh, it's her favorite gun. It's a very. And was so thoughtful to leave it out for her. It's a very <laughs> shiny, uh, a shiny lady. Very feminine-looking gun, yeah, like, so really. We're, we're there, the manipulation of Josie moving her to this. Basically, yeah. we get this. And this is a, all a very complicated way to trick Josie into meeting with Eckhart so that he can kill her for them. Or that like she, it's oh. just, she can kill Eckhart. I think. I think. I think well, Catherine, I think they want. Yeah, they want them both to take care of each other, but they don't want to be involved. And right. so it's this is a very intricate plan. Yeah. Catherine Martell is a giant cat, and she acts like a cat all the time. She has cat-like tendencies, and she's just she's had Josie forever, but she's just having a lot of fun with this like long, drawn-out, very over-the-top and ridiculous way to take her down. Yeah. She's a spider cat because she's yeah. also weaving a web while she yeah. toys with it. Yeah, the food. yeah, she, yeah. No, she, and that's why that's why I don't hate Catherine because at least she's interesting. Yeah, and she is who she is. I, oh, I totally. like that. Yeah, but, I love Catherine. Yeah. I, she's a she's a battle axe, and she is. I mean, and she she gets you know she gets she's a results. Force of nature. Yeah, she's a force. Of she's nature. always doing these like intense power moves. Like yeah. when the, when the scene opens and her and Peter, you know, reading the newspaper and having it and drinking or whatever, and there's a knock on the door, and she's like, "Uh, I'm not opening that." Like she's just like constant. Her life is an entire series of power moves. Yeah, yeah. I want to read her self help book. Oh, yeah, it's just going to be a, a, a cartoon of punching a man in the face. Yep. <laughs> Never answer the door. Punch a man in the face. <laughs> Three, win. Win. <laughs> Power and money. 
So, so from here we go back to the Great Northern where we see yes, the weasel. <laughs> so, so we see Bobby. Bobby is Bobby is in Ben's office with Audrey and Ben. Clearly, Bobby is working for Ben. Ben is in a tracksuit, a, a circa 1991 Fila tracksuit. With some, with very some stylish. So, like, late very 80s, stylish. like, yeah. health food. Exactly. Yeah. I can, can you guys, like, I can, just looking at the scene, I can hear that fabric in my head, that, yes. like, terrible noise. <laughs> that it was makes. that weird, like, not parachute fabric. It was a little stiffer, but light. Yeah, it was very weird. But um, it, Like, crinkly, stiffy, like, kind of yeah. noise. Yeah, oh, yeah. what a nightmare. And cr- crinkled right along with the celery. Yeah. Yes! So, <laughs> So ben is, expl- ben is explaining to Bobby that he wants him to join them for the board meeting, and then we get gladdered again as we see Audrey and Jerry are there, um, and that they're just waiting on one more person to join for the board meeting, and sure enough, it is Billy Zane, uh, and we get some Hello. More, we, we get some more exposition as to who just John Justice Wheeler, played by Billy Zane, is, um, and that he explains that uh, he's asked him to join the, the board of Horn Industries after Ben has made an investment in him years ago, and that basically Horn Industries is in bad shape. Catherine has the mill and Ghostwood, and you know this is what they're going to do. And we get the we get the classic Twin Peaks jazz, you know, kind of the the odd music playing. And uh, Ben reveals a big blown up drawing of a little pine weasel. The pine weasel, yes. And he explains that these little guys are nearly extinct and that if any sort of development were happening on Ghostwood, it would wipe them out. And so that now uh, the plan is to save the pine weasel. Uh, Jerry uh, informs everyone that the pine weasel tastes delicious uh, roasted, uh, but then he quickly realizes in a very Jerry-esque moment. Yep, and he and he quickly realizes that Ben's plan is to block the, Catherine's development of Ghostwood with saving the pine weasel, and that until they get another shot at it, and it's genius. And and so then Audrey asks, well, then what's next after the pine weasel? And Ben says he's considering a run for the Senate, which I feel like in today's political outcome. That oh, makes he would be sense. perfect. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I love I mean, this scene. I love the pine weasel. It's so ridiculous. I, I this scene doesn't make any sense. Like <laughs> none. Why do they need John Justice Wheeler for this? Why would they actually go to the trouble to save the pine weasel to undermine Ghostwood? Wouldn't there be other ways? But at the end of it, I don't care. Yes. I don't care that exactly. the logic doesn't make sense because now we have the save the pine weasel movement, which is amazing. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it, for me, it actually is really in keeping with Ben Horn because it's yes, something it, that on the true. surface. It is actually like a, a kind thing, but underneath is just so silly. It's so like you can see him like literally looking through like some sort of forestry book and going, "All right, this, this, this. Huh? A pine weasel. Okay. Perfect. It just like it just is so in keeping with his personality, and it's just so like that. One of the things I love about Twin Peaks is just the the juxtaposition of things like the pine weasel against just like the utter darkness of the mythology. And I like I live for, for scenes like this. Well, yeah. And I think, I think it's also the, the ambiguous nature of Ben's motivation that because he's coming off of thinking he was general Lee. Right. And so then you've got to wonder, is this, is this genius or is this insanity? Like, is this truly a play to save the pine weasel or is this a way to get revenge at Catherine? And it's not until the moment that he says he's thinking of running for Senate where I firmly believe that, no, real Ben is back and this is his manipulative, you know, like like you said, Mallory, you know, he's doing something good, but his uh, motives are more nefarious than he's revealing. Uh, and I just love Billy Zane's confused face throughout this entire scene because he has no idea what insanity he's got. Right, because John Justice Wheeler's role 
in this is also a, 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 t- a tad convoluted, yeah. but uh, again, uh, probably worth it. So you get to see Billy Zane. Yeah, exactly. Well, we it, it, that gets kind of explained a little bit in the next scene. Where a little bit better, Jack, yeah, yeah. Where, but in in the scene, I mean, again, I I think it's really keeping with Ben Horn and Mo, and I think that's the genius of that is is not knowing whether or not he's crazy or super smart because there's so many decisions that he makes throughout the entirety of the series where he's so business savvy. And, and clearly, you know, he owns all these things, but at the same time, he's barely holding on to it because he's fucking nuts. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> There's a pretty traditional 1980s businessman story being told here on the surface, too, which is uh, businessman, hard driving, works himself until exhaustion, has a breakdown midlife crisis, comes back trying to be healthy and concerned more about the world. Yes. Right. Like him with the tracksuit and the celery and wanting to save the pine weasel, if we didn't know about the ghostwood thing, could read as like, I'm a changed man. Yep. Yeah, that's a very good point. And also, you consider the time we're coming out of the '80s, the 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 Wall Street, you know, like the time yeah, of success. Yeah. And yeah, that's a very good point. Um, so then we cut back to the diner, and Windham Earl is there, dressed up like a trucker, finishing up his meal, and he leaves a note for Shelley on the diner and slinks out uh, all the while. Yeah, but screw all that. Then Ed comes in. Oh, yeah, <laughs> we'll get there. So <laughs> Norma's on the phone with someone telling them to get on the next bus, and it turns out it's her sister Annie who is leaving the convent. Um, oh, Annie. Yeah, so we're getting a Can't tease, wait for Annie. Getting teased for Annie to come. Um, and then, uh, so Shelly and Norma chat a little bit about Annie, and then Shelly finds the letter and finds the, no- the, the, the torn note from Leo as well as the note to go to the roadhouse at 9.30. Now, Mallory, to your point earlier, Norma says, sounds interesting, but also sounds dangerous. Right. Yeah, it's just like so, so insane you, to me. Like I know that it's, I know that it's Twin Peaks, yeah. but just like, and I know like there's so much the the, the relationship between Shelley and Norma is so fascinating to me because <sighs> Norma is clearly just an older version of Shelley. Yeah, right. She's making the same terrible decisions, and it's interesting to watch it in real time is almost as if Shelly is talking to an older version of herself and dispensing advice that she knows that she ultimately isn't going to take because she right. is doing all the same things. Yeah. So every scene with them, it's, it's, it's an interesting, it's almost like um, uh, they're just sort of two different places in someone's time in someone's life just sort of um, uh, superimposed on top of each other. And so you could see Norma is just kind of like, ah, oh, that doesn't sound like a good idea, yeah. but she knows that Shelly's going to go anyway. And Shelly knows that she's going to go. And you're just like, Oh, ladies. Yeah. Well, that's a really good point. I, I didn't even think about it as Norma saying, I wish someone had told me this, but I also know I probably wouldn't have listened. Yeah. Yeah. So there's always this sort of in, in, in the way that, you know, Norma's delivery is always sort of slightly exasperated, but bemused mm-hmm. like when she talks to Shelly and there's a, you know, there's a lot of love there, but you can tell that they, they're they're so connected and they're so close, and I think that's part of the reason why she's so close to Shelley. She knows that this advice is going to go fall on deaf ears because she yeah. knows that they're basically the same person. Well, she does, she but it's push. always an interesting thing to watch. Yeah, she doesn't even push it. She goes, "Sounds dangerous," and just walks away. And my yep. only, my only thought there is that if only like we we Tom, we haven't talked that much about the difference between 1990 and 1991 and now as much. But I feel like now they would be like, "Oh, well, let's just go look at the security camera footage to see who left that note." 
Yeah. Yeah. But back then they didn't have that. It truly is a mystery as to who just left this note on the counter. Or let's report this to Homeland Security because it sounds like this is creepy. But um, but none of that matters because as Mallory you mentioned, Big Ed comes in and not only does does, does he come in, but he goes right behind the counter, grabs Norma, comes in swinging, and tells her some of the most romantic stuff about loving her for years. And now it's their turn, and he kisses her and proposes to her, proposes marriage. Big Ed and oh my heart. <laughs> is there oh, any, I love it. Is there anything better than Everett McGill being? Oh, you know, oh, no. Oh, he's great. Nothing. No. He's great. It's melts. the best. It totally melts. And I, what I think is funny is that is wonderful and romantic and as exciting as the scene is for viewers, you can tell that it has an air of, it's almost like very anticlimactic because for them, for Ed and Norma, this is a big moment, but Shelly's just kind of like, eh, yeah. yeah, there they are. Like, of course, everybody, we do that. It's the best, it's the worst kept secret ever and yeah, everybody yeah. has been waiting for it. So it's an interesting thing to see the different, like what, what something feels like on the inside of that, whereas what it looks like from the outside. Yeah. It's it's, uh, it's I just love Big Ed. He's just the best. Um, all right, but so then we go back. Oh to my the, god, I just I I adore them so much. Yeah. So we go out to the woods, uh, to the to Windermere's cabin where Leo is outside whittling arrows, uh, arrow shafts, and Windermere oh, comes. Oh jeez. Windermere is singing creepy songs and and edu- and and then he starts telling Leo how he's educating him, and he pulls out an arrowhead and shows that you're making arrows, and he explains that nature is cruel, but tells Leo that he's a good boy, and I feel like this is just a reminder that. Leo is with Wyndham and something yeah. is going on. And yeah. That's really it. Yeah. And so then. Yeah. A wonky scene. Yeah. A I mean, we don't even really get a payoff for the arrow shafts in this episode, do we? No, we don't. Nope. Yeah. No. It's just this. This is happening. So just keep that in mind. Uh, so then we go to the sheriff station, and Hank's is Hank is in jail, and Norma comes in, and right out of the gate asks him for yeah, Norma <laughs> coming up. in swinging again, right? She just asks him for a divorce. Yeah. Um, I love this scene. Yeah. And um, this and, scene makes me so happy. <laughs> why? Why is that? Why does it make? Because because Norma's uh, standing up for herself. This scene's really, really interesting because one, it's finally Norma standing up for herself. She's cuts through all of Hank's bullshit, all of his sweet talking, all of his smooth talking, everything that he has to offer her. She cuts through all of it. And I do think it's very, um, it means a lot that the only reason she's able to do this is because he's literally behind bars. There's nothing that he can do to her. Even though he tries, he grabs for her in this episode. But it's only until, it's only in this moment where he's locked up. He's locked, he's totally locked up and, and Big Ed is totally free that she's able to make her decision, which makes me a little disappointed in her, but I'm happy that she does it anyway. And the, the best moment in all of this is that when she's, she's standing up to him, she's like, I'm done, I'm done, I'm at, I want a divorce. And he wants his alibi because he, yeah. you know, they're, they're ready to take him down for, the, for shooting Leo Johnson and he wants uh, Norman to lie and say that he was at the diner that night. And she just says, I'm not here to negotiate with you. And I'm like, yeah, girl, that's what's up. Well, it's, it's funny because it also shows, you know, difference in time period or whatever. I guess Washington, I guess it's more dramatic for her to ask him for a divorce. But is Washington an at-will state? Like now you, you don't need to ask for a divorce. You just get one. You know, like yeah. so, it shows the difference. I, I, yeah. Like that power dynamic wouldn't exist now. But then I, I, I love the fact that Hank 
it goes into his Hank soft shoe mode of I want you know yeah. I don't like the way I am I, I'm going to go into I'm going to go to therapy yeah, exactly that don't play anymore Hank yeah exactly and, yeah. and Norma stands up for himself and which I think is great and then then so when he doesn't manipulate her he tries to negotiate with her and says give me your yes. I'll give you your divorce if you give me an alibi and then she still holds her ground which is awesome and then yes. we, we get the 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 memorable moment where Hank yells at her and says that uh, you're his whore Norma oh yeah this scene is so good. And Norma delivers the legendary line, I'd rather be his whore than your wife. Damn. Yeah, strength. you could take that to the fucking bank, Hank. Now, now Screw yourself. Now, what's interesting about this is that this is the exact line that Kate Winslet says to Billy Zane in Titanic. No. Oh my God. Swear Holy to God. Holy shit, you're right. Yes. <laughs> you are right. In the Which key, came first? This came first. This the Titanic was 1997. No shit. Yes. Do you think Billy Zane like said, you know what would be a really good line here? I don't know. It's really like so like in the in the I key, was in this episode of Twin Peaks once. In the key oh moment when when, when 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 Rose and Jack run off and she uh, leaves Billy Zane, he says, you, you, "You'll be his whore," and she says, "I'd rather be his whore than your wife." Exactly the God, same that's line. That's so funny. Oh my God. So so, so oh, oh, that's amazing. We talked about the weird Seinfeld connections to Twin Peaks. Now there's a weird, there are two weird Twin, uh, yeah. Twin Peaks Titanic connections. So there it is. <laughs> that's hysterical. Yeah, but so happy. Oh for my me. God. That's great. Yeah, go Norma. This this episode makes me, again, it, it does bother me, but it is interesting that all of these, these things have been, have been boiling for so long. And it isn't only until Nadine is literally crazy and has actually left Ed and, and, and Hank is locked up and about to be put away for murder that Ed and Norma, who could theoretically have done this 20 years ago, yeah. just are fine. Now they're finally like, okay, we can be free. And it kind of, it is kind of a sad thing as excited as we are to see them as viewers, like finally together out in public. It is sad because everything is just in their head and everybody in the town besides Hank and Nadine know. So it's just, it bums me out that it took these extremes for them to finally be together. Yep. But they're but they're getting there. So that's what's that's what's important. So Yes, true. Go Norma. So, so we go outside in the sheriff's station back to the conference room where Pete is mulling over the chessboard and reminiscing about various moves. Uh, and there moves. are donuts. And, and very important yes. Tom, there are donuts. And so uh, good. And they find they 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 inform Pete that they only have five minutes to decide what the move is before the, the the paper goes to press. And then finally, Pete makes the move and assures Cooper that that will keep any pieces from coming off the board for at least five or six moves. Uh, so that's good. And so then uh, Albert comes in and asks to talk to Cooper. So they step outside. Truman looks a little concerned. And then Albert informs Cooper that the Seattle PD have a witness that places Josie at the murder. What are we waiting for? Let's go get this bitch. I believe he says. Right? Yes. Tell, take her down, Albert. Yep. And Cooper says, uh, don't worry, I'll handle it. And right as Truman comes out, glares at them in his best soap opera glare and storms out of the station. And Albert says, looks like you already have, Coop. So mm. Truman knows something's yep. up with Josie. So. Well, you know, I love the relationship between Albert and Harry because you totally get it on both sides. You just un you really sympathize with both of them and you can see it from both of their points of view. So it, it's kind of I think it's an interesting moment in Albert's character that instead of freaking out on Harry, he just says, looks like it's already been taken care of. Yep. So, oh, Albert's the best. 
anyway. Just he is the greatest. Yes. Rest in rest in rest in peace. Still not over it. So then, so then, just as you're on that high of Norma and Albert, we're gonna bring you back down to Josie getting dressed and putting makeup on. And, <laughs> oh, kill me! And uh, she gets a knock on her door, and you think that it's gonna be Truman, but nope. It turns out it's Andrew with some champagne. And uh, they toast to beginnings and endings and the wisdom to know the difference. And this is really Andrew and Josie uh, coming to terms with their relationship, where Andrew's saying that when well, that, that at first he was angry with her. Well, no, hang on, we get there. At yeah, first yeah. he was at first he was angry with her, but then over time he realized it was Eckhart manipulating her. And then um, you know, and and he uh, he understands that their relationship is tied up in love and and who loves whom and that sort of thing. And Andrew oh, says no more lies. <laughs> he understands that she had a job to do and now she must face the consequences and then the manipulation kicks back in and he tells her that she must go see Eckhard uh, but Josie doesn't want to but Andrew says he can get you out of the country but don't tell him I'm alive like they're 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 manipulating Josie as much as they can yeah uh, and pushing her towards talking to Eckhard and he ends it by saying we won't speak again so. I, I maybe you're right that this is them working out the relationship in other words Andrew working out the part of the relationship where he wants Josie dead because yes. that's all he's yeah. after this scene. there's no emotion in this scene <laughs> I, well, I come think, on I think I think it's like 25% emotion 75% manipulation there may be some wistful regret for times lost yeah. but that's about it yeah I think wistful regrets about the best thing that you can say for this yeah <laughs> So, so then we, uh, so then as if you didn't want to be reminded of the past four episodes, please kill me. <laughs> but now we go to a random spot in the woods where Donna is standing alone and James pulls up on his motorcycle. My immediate question is, how did Donna get there? Yes. So, Uber. As Donna explained, <laughs> Donna explains she wanted to go someplace they've never been before. And sure enough, through the trees, she set up a lovely picnic. With wine and cheese, and again, these kids are eating outside of their age. But um, yeah, where did, how did she get there? Who who got her this wine? <laughs> <laughs> but so then we get there. We get some uh, some soppy kind of uh, wrapping up of storyline as Donna and uh, James talk through Evelyn and the the impact it had on their relationship. Yeah. James gives us the exposition of fills in the blank that he went to the police. He answered all their questions. Evelyn's going to stand trial, and he's going to be a witness. Uh, the police told James that plot line you in you were in was the crime. Yeah. You're free to go. Yeah, sir. <laughs> yeah. we've locked her up for a terrible, <laughs> terrible four episode arc. Yep, and you're so, free to go. And so then um, we uh, Donna explains that she she knows about him and Evelyn, but she understands. And then James says, but I do feel bad. And then James says, can we just start I'm all over? I'm fucking again? sure he does. And James says, can we start all over again? To which I say, God, yes, I wish we could. And Donna, <laughs> and Donna begs him to come home. And he says he can't. Wait, but I thought he wanted to start all over again. Exactly. Oh, he means start all over again with leaving. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> but yeah, without you, Donna. And so, so that Donna says that 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 uh, that she doesn't he, she doesn't want him to worry about her, but she wants to be part of something good. And J and she tells James to go and take all the time you need. She'll miss him like crazy, but he'll come back with great stories, and she'll be there. And why? What? A, what? A, de, 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 coming back with great stories. What a huge departure from. From what things have been, yeah. and so then at one last one last ditch effort, is James asks her to come with him, and she says no, but he promises to come back, and then they kiss. Uh, it threatens, threatens to come back. Now the only good thing about this scene, guys, is that this is that is, it's Donna instead of Evelyn. Well, no, it's a it's Donna instead of Evelyn. This is the last time we see James for the rest of the season. 
Wow. This, oh, this great is James, This is James's last episode. He promised to come back, though, so yep. we're going to see him in season three. <laughs> we do hear him in a future episode. With no hair. We do hear him in a future episode, yeah. in a couple episodes, but we don't see him uh, ever again until Shaved Head uh, 2017, James. So. I think all I have to say about this scene is that I, the thing I cared most about was what was going to happen to all that food she prepared. Right. Yeah. I know. <laughs> well, they're not even eating it. It's good is, cheese. This whole picnic yeah. is going to waste. Yeah. So, oh uh, man! Uh, but I'm least... so. This was again. I was so happy. I'm always so happy to see this scene just because it means it's over. Yeah. Like we're just done. I hate Donna and James so fucking much. We haven't had a James defender on. We're gonna have to work hard to find. There are none. I'm really curious. James defenders do not exist. I don't know. If anyone likes James at this point, yeah. Oh, it's painful. I've never met one. I have never met a person that. Every time I say the word James around any Twin Peaks fan, it's just. A, a chorus of eye rolling and si- deep size. <laughs> uh, well, thankfully that that saga is now over. So whew, we did it. Ding dong. Uh, so we go, we go back to the Martells and we get a nice little domestic moment as uh, Catherine is drinking tea and reading and Pete is working on a. I want that lore. chair. Yeah, that yeah. looks that looks comfy. I like how Pete's got a nice little lap uh, lap table for his fishing lure. Oh, mm-hmm. I know yeah. it's so cute. It's cute. But sure enough, there's a knock at the door and we get a little comedic as neither of them want to answer it. But then oh yeah, uh, this is the power. Power move power scene. Move. Yeah, 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 exactly. And so then Pete uh, Pete gets up and answers the door, and Truman bursts in. He needs to see Josie. And then you get the Catherine saying one thing, Pete giving the truth. So Catherine is like, oh, she took the car. I don't know where she went. And Pete's like, the Great Northern. <laughs> Great Northern. Yeah. And uh, they finally reveal, they beat around the bush a little bit. They tell him that she's going to see Eckhart, and Truman just goes out the door, and Pete is not happy with Catherine. I can't tell if Pete's unhappy that she jerked him around with telling the truth or just because she made him get up to answer the door. Probably a little, both. A little bit of both. Yeah, yeah. probably both. Yeah, exactly. So then, then we cut to the Great Northern and uh, Mr. Eckhart is in the elevator and sure enough, so is Andrew there and we get uh, and he stops the elevator and Eckhart finds out that Andrew is alive uh, in a very odd way of saying of first disbelieving it, saying he doesn't believe in ghosts. Yeah, a little Dickens moment here. Exactly. Um, but then Andrew explains that he is very much alive, and they start talking about Josie. Andrew says that he knows it was Josie, and that that uh, that he's made Eckhart think she betrayed him. And they talk about love, and Andrew says how he never he doesn't believe in love. And Eckhart says that you know Josie is his, but then Andrew says, but Josie loves the sheriff. Um, and then they kind of Andrew says goodbye gleefully. And uh, yes. continues to he fades back into the into well because he's planted the last seed of yes. the demise of Josie at this point. Exactly. With his big weird George Romero glasses on. No, <laughs> that's his disguise. I know, right? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm playing, I'm playing a horror director. No one will know who I am. <laughs> no one will think it's Andrew. They'll think it's George Romero. That's great. <laughs> So that, then we head over to the Great Northern Dining Room where Ben in a in a jaunty turtleneck and Audrey and Billy, oh and Billy Zane are dining, uh, having a nice dinner together. And we get even more exposition on just who uh, John Justice Wheeler, also known as Jack, also known as Billy Zane. Uh, Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt. Exactly. <laughs> who he is and what he does. And basically uh, Ben explains that he buys failing businesses, brings them back, and then sells them for a hefty profit. Um, and but with an environmental conscience. Exactly. I know that just seems like such a weird little thing to add. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, and so Ben is effusive in his praise of Jack, and Jack is very modest. 
pissed about this, but then they're interrupted by a man in a tuxedo who informs Ben that the chef has tried to stab Jerry, and so this is a convenient way to get Ben out of the scene. It is so random. So Twin Peaks. So, so, so Twin Peaks. They have built Jerry up to be like really obsessed with food, so I guess it yes. kind of makes sense. But then, uh, so that gives Audrey and Jack some time to talk, and uh, Audrey is asking, you know, what, you know, whether their business is bankrupt or failing. And Jack explains that he's just there to do a favor for a friend. Um, and then uh, Audrey, again, Mallory, to your point, Audrey stands up for herself and defends her family's business, and and uh, you know, kind of almost insinuating they don't need him. Uh, and then uh, she asks, "Fuck her, you and your pouty lips, <laughs> Jack. Pouty. We don't need you. And so, They're very pouty." And so then she asks Jack where he's been all this time, and he explains he's been all corners of the world, and it's beautiful, but it's good to be home in Twin Peaks. And it's getting a very flirty vibe to which Audrey then, out of nowhere, clarifies, I'm only 18. I know. What? Like, whoa. <laughs> like, like, she jumped to that conclusion very quickly, I thought. She's like, but I should have said this to Cooper a long time ago, but I'm going to say it to you now. <laughs> well, you know what? I do, it, as like, it, it, when it happens, it feels so anomalous. And just like, we're, he, he comments on it. He's like, what does that have to do with the price of eggs? But you know what? Audrey's seen some shit at this point. She knows yeah. how men work. Yeah. She knows exactly where this is going. She knows, like, she's been through a lot with men. So she's like, uh, this is, again, another great moment where I feel like she is finally growing. I mean, she is only 18, but it seems like she's finally growing up and getting a backbone and be getting and being mature. And she's just like, I'm only 18. Yep. Like, yeah, I kind of love it, even though it just seems kind of silly. Yep. I, I feel like you're right, Mallory. She's trying to not give in to a pretty face, right? She's not yeah. going to just fall for every guy who walks around. And then at the end of the scene, even the power of the pouty lips finally crack her her there's defenses. only so much we can we can hold out against them really <laughs> yeah so um but this gives uh audrey an excuse to uh excuse to excuse herself from dinner and uh jack kind of looks at her longingly and you get the sense of this blossoming whatever this love love uh situation is going to be between jack and audrey uh which i'm all for right now billy zane added to the cast like david yeah. Duchovny before him i'm all about billy yeah zane. very good addition very good addition well and she stops and says I'll see you later, Jack, which is the nicest thing she said all dinner. So you, she's, she's finally starting to crumble. Yeah, yeah. Oh, totally. And, and I think it's important, though, to, to reflect on Billy Zane here because through season two, we've, we've complained and we've had problems with the flow of season two that it felt, you know, like several episodes felt like they were season finales and things like that. And they've tried to introduce new characters like Evelyn and, and we brought in Andrew and Mr. Eckhart and things like that. But of all the new characters and all the new kind of story arcs, Billy Zane is the one that I, like, I found myself in rewatching it now getting the most excited for because it's like, yeah. wow, this is, this is a, a, and maybe it's, it's the level of actor. Like, like here is, here is mm -hmm. someone who you take notice of when he's on screen certainly yeah, yeah. oh absolutely yeah. so uh so yeah so then we cut to the roadhouse where it's now 9 30 p.m and donna comes in and she sees she's shelly at the bar and shelly offers her a cigarette uh and they're all chummy which makes me think when have donna and shelly ever been friends i right? had the same thought <laughs> when has this ever there's been like i and i was actually thinking about this and i looking over i mean there's been i think a hundred percent of their interactions have been in the diner yes 
and and, yes. even, and even that those interactions are here's what you ordered and like, yeah. yes. like there's, there was no no chumminess no friendliness but I guess for the sake of Wyndham Earl they need to be friends so you know no well you know what I I was th- the thing that we we always forget that Shelley dropped out of high school early to marry Leo yes. so right. that means that she was a like a um what's the word I'm looking for school. She's schoolmate of of yeah, Shelly and Donna. Class Donna. Went to school. Yeah, classmate. That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. So they all went. They've all been. In, you know, assuming they've all been in Twin Peaks their entire lives. They've all been going to school together since they were kids, and they're all around the same age. So as as weird as it seems, because they aren't you know friend really friendly in the show, and they don't have a lot of screen time together, they've probably known each other since they were kids. Yeah. So yeah. It kind and of this makes is a small town, right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it makes it makes sense that they all know each other, but from the show, it's somewhat j- j- jarring, you know. Yeah, like hey, Shelly, my old pal, right. let's and share then, a cigarette. Like, then, wait, what? And then when Audrey joins the 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 group and it becomes the trio, and they start comparing their notes, and they realize they put together the pieces and start reading the poem from Leo, um, and we get the sense of doom as we see down at the end of the bar as Wyndham are all dressed up like the trucker, smiling at them, but. Nothing happens. We just see. Yeah, it. yeah. So held held until later, yeah. six weeks later, as yeah. it well, turns yeah, out. Oh my exactly. god! Jeez. Well, it's interesting to see these three women together because they are respectively sort of the bombshells of the the show. Yep. Although Laura Flynn Boyle really bothers me, but you know, these this is the entertainment. This is the Rolling Stones cover right here. You yeah, know? yeah, right. Yep. And but you don't actually see them all together like this, interacting with each other until this moment. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting. All these worlds colliding. To a little note on Lara Flynn Boyle, um, when I watched Twin Peaks originally, I was in uh, middle school and eighth grade, big crush on Lara Flynn Boyle from Twin Peaks. So uh, just a little defensive Lara. Even though, even That's though not a note about Lara Flynn Boyle so much as it is about Ron Richards. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and also, no, in no defense of her performance in season two, that was 100% season one based, but still, nonetheless. And you um, know what? Moira Kelly, I kind of like her in Fire Walk with me. Yeah, she's, she's a different, she's a different Donna, but I like her. I think yeah. it's not so much uh, about the actress as I think the different types of Donnas. And I like Moira Kelly's Donna better than I like Laura Flynn Boyle's. Well, Donna. we'll see who's playing Donna. Donna in season three because neither Moira Kelly or Laura Flynn Boyle are back, so that will be interesting <laughs> as well. Um, yeah, weird. But so it all leads up to this last scene. Uh, we cut back to the great. I have so many thoughts on this scene. Oh, yeah, this is going to be a big one. So, so we cut back to the Great Northern Hotel, and Cooper is on his bed practicing fishing, uh, which the is cutest. is very adorable. He's got a little red kind of ribbon thing that he's practicing his casting with, and he gets a phone oh call. My from, God. He gets a phone call from Catherine, um, who tips him off that Josie's at the hotel going to see Eckhard, and so Cooper puts his vest on, grabs his gun, and walks down the hall towards Eckhard's suite, and he hears uh, some noise. He hears. Josie yelling no then he hears a gunshot so he bursts in the room and he sees Josie and Eckhart in bed and then Eckhart stands up and reveals that he's bleeding from his chest and then he collapses and then Josie snaps up from the bed with the gun holding it on Cooper and Cooper's uh, Cooper's asking her why she shot him and she says that she won't go to jail and then we get Truman, who comes in dr- gun drawn, yelling at her to put the gun down. And she explains she never meant to hurt Truman. And she goes to put the gun to her neck as you think she's going to shoot herself. But then she passes out. And Truman runs and holds her in his arms and, and uh, realizes that she's, uh, <laughs> that she's died. And then we get the spotlight. And you hear laughing. And Cooper looks to the bed as Truman and Josie fade away. And who emerges from behind the bed? But my living nightmare, Bob. Who is, Bob. Who is laughing? Ah, Bob. Who, who is laughing? And then, and then ask Coop what happened to Josie, 
and laughs, and then that he fades away, and then the little man from another place is on the bed dancing, and then the spotlight fades, and Truman and Josie are back, and Truman is crying, and then the camera pans over to the nightstand, and then over, uh. over to the drawer knob, and you see Josie's face superimposed over the drawer knob screaming, and then the wood begins to flex as she's screaming and pushing her head out, and you realize that Josie is in the knob! Oh, she's been in the knob. <laughs> So this I is never a, okay. have figured out exactly what's going on here. So okay, is, you know, so very controversial thoughts. scene. Very controversial scene. Mallory, go. Let's hear your thoughts. <laughs> Honestly, because you know, I I love. It's very clear. I love Twin Peaks, and the thing that makes me love Twin Peaks is the deeper mythology of the show. I live for these scenes, but this, and I don't think that it's. I, I really do not think that it's a coincidence that this particular scene is happening at this particular low point in the season because this this whole scene reeks of non-David Lynch people trying to do David Lynch things. Yep. It feels like they were like, oh, well, he's gone and things are, people people don't want to watch anymore, so uh, let's pick up the toys that he left behind and try to make something of them. Well, but it just... So, so, so that, yeah, so that, that, to that point, I mean, so, so to give the backstory, this is in, in addition to James, this is also obviously Josie's last episode. Um, and to kind of give behind the scenes of what was going on in the show at the time, Joan Chen was getting a lot of attention from her work on Twin Peaks as well as work in movies. And she wanted to leave the show to focus on movies. And so they, you know, the, 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 you know, Mark Frost and, and the production staff agreed and basically wrote the scene as a way to get her off the show so she can go off and go, you know, go be in movies. Um, and so the folding it in with the mythology definitely feels like, you know, I've, I've, I've read a lot of people in their, in their recaps and their summaries and their reviews of this say, this is just Twin Peaks being Twin Peaks, right? And I don't think it is, though. I think this is Twin Peaks. I think this is not Twin Peaks trying to be Twin Peaks. Right. Which I don't think it just feels so messy. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, think, I don't think you're wrong there. And then, and I, and I was actually uh, had a conversation with another former guest, uh, Gabe Hardman, who hates this scene uh, because Ugh. feels as if the inclusion of Bob and the man from the, the little man from another place uh, is unnecessary and just pasting that in the mythology into a scene that's not really tied into it. But then I've I 100 percent agree. But I've also read people trying to justify it and saying that the entire episode and these past couple episodes, Josie has been living. In in fear, fear of being caught for the murder of Jonathan, fear of, of being you know handed over to Eckhart, fear, 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 and what does Bob feed on but fear? And yeah. so it would make you sense know, that Bob is there and he's the one feeding on her and he's the one who you know who had a hand in her dying. Okay, I get that. That I 100% like that angle I get, but if you're going to apply that to Josie in this particular episode, what about Shelly? Yep. Shelly lives in fear all the time. Like there's so many different, especially female characters that are marinating in fear in Twin Peaks. I mean, I and, guess you could consider Shelly stronger than Josie though, in a way. But also, but if you look at the type of people that get taken by Bob or manipulated by Bob in some way, they're always very at their core of cores, innocent people. And I don't mm -hmm. think, and yeah. I think that the one interesting aspect to Josie is that she isn't innocent and that she's only playing it that way. And she's very cunning and she's very intelligent. And even, even in this scene, yes, she's afraid, but she's got, she's brought this gun, you know, she's, she's trying to manipulate those around her that are trying to manipulate her. And it just doesn't, it just doesn't play for me. Jo Josie has never, ever been wrapped into the mythology. She's never, it just, those two, those two arcs, those two tracks have never gone together. And it's in the great Northern, I get, I get it where we've seen a lot of this stuff, but it just feels so, 
paste it in. Yes. I could, I could, I could make justifications for Bob showing up. And Mallory, you, you've weakened those justifications with a pretty good argument that Josie shouldn't be Bob's carrier in any way. But I could sort of, you know, rationalize there's, there's, you know, fear and death and anger and Bob would be attracted to that. And maybe, maybe he somehow, you know, manifests because of that. The man from another place dancing doesn't make any sense because this yes. isn't a Cooper vision. There's no message being given. And yep. then Josie in the doorknob is the worst because I don't have any clue. Well, what that it's means. just so strange. I, I, th I think it's meant to be something really weird. That's very Lynchian or that sort yeah. of thing that would be except. That kind of Mm. That's just not the way Lynch works, though. Right? Yeah, exactly. 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 It's someone who isn't David Lynch trying to do David Lynchy things. That would be like someone saying, "Ooh, look at my short film. I've made it all David Lynch, and it's it's a man sitting on a duck, you know, eating paint." It's yeah. like David Lynch, while it's David Lynch's universe, while it seems so arbitrary and strange, it always makes a kind of sense, and the kind of sense that it makes is sometimes very visceral and isn't immediately apparent, but it's all very cohesive. This right. just feels like you can't you can't make David Lynch weirdness by just filling in a Mad Libs of stuff, yeah. and that's what this scene felt like. Is they were like, uh, well, people like the the man from another place, and they uh, they like Bob, and uh, let's door uh, doorknob. Okay, cool. Like it just it felt. And also, the man from another place never appears at the Great Northern. He never appears no. in Visions until this moment. Well, so so now the 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 counterpoint to that is that I did a little research, and apparently, at the first Twin Peaks fan fest in 1993, Frank Silva, the man who plays Bob, was asked about this, and his theory is that um, that Bob took her to the Red Room. Right, which is that? Which is we've okay. seen we've seen where you know the the black and white uh, floor and the red curtains. Right, and he explains that. And Tom will have to look for this later when we get closer. But he says that um, when we return to the red room later in the run of Twin Peaks, you see Josie's body, but you don't see her face. You just see her body sticking out of the curtains, meaning ah. meaning that 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 doorknob that 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 uh, drawer knob is a link to the red room and many people are wondering how he might know this is because he was actually there when it was all shot and while that stuff might have been cut out and maybe her maybe her body you don't see it in the last episode and there's some people who are saying that that I've seen the you know I watched the final episode 30 times I've never seen her um, and that maybe it was cut out so who knows um, but that's the theory that at least that real life Bob took from it so and oh, like okay, I'll I'll take that, but it seems like that all of that stuff was was put in because they put this scene in there and that they yeah. needed to justify yeah. it in some way. Well, and here's the other thing: none of the rest of what's going to happen or has happened before suffers if you remove this scene. Yep, absolutely. This doesn't add to the mythology. It doesn't add to anybody's care. It doesn't add to anything except now, your total confusion. Now here's now here's my defense of it: is that. As a fan of the show and not worrying about the mythology and not trying to rationalize everything, um, this being the last episode before a six-week hiatus, being reminded of Bob and the little man from another place gets me very excited. Like, oh, I, and I can see that, but there's, yeah. I guess there, there was a, there was a bunch of other parts of this episode where you could have put them in there. Yeah. That weren't Josie being in a piece of wood. Right. Exactly. So, <laughs> you know, we just have a lot of stuff going on. There's stuff with um, what would be a better spot to put this? I mean, there's some of the cool Wyndham Earl stuff. Um, you should have put him out at the picnic with James and Donna. Yes. Oh, man. <laughs> 
little man, the man from another place eating some of that cheese. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. So Bob climbing out of a picnic basket. <laughs> out of the picnic basket. Perfect. <laughs> so very controversial ending. Josie's in the doorknob. Uh, credits, end scene, and episode. Uh, but an important episode. And Mallory, I'm glad that you joined us for this because not only written and directed yeah. by women, featuring Woo. the demise of Josie, your most hated character, the last scene, the last yes. uh, episode with James. Big things happened here. Um, yes. But uh, yeah, so now let's take some time to, you know, to record a little observations for Diane. Uh, anything we noted while watching this episode, revisiting it? Uh, Tom, do you want to kick, kick things off? Yeah, the only thing I'm going to note is that line that Pete makes after Andrew and Catherine leave, uh, where he gives this very, like, almost uh, Shakespearean goodbye, you sweet Packards, which oh, feels yeah. just like l- l- genuinely full of joy for his buddy Andrew and his wife Catherine and uh and, and it it's so it doesn't really mean anything it doesn't do anything but I I just love it anyway right yeah. what's funny is that my my observation actually is paired up with that because this is the first time I I'm, when you invited me to be on this show I was very excited because I'm actually I mean I'm always re-watching Twin Peaks I just put it on in the background all the time because I have a, a problem but this is the first time I'm re-watching both seasons after having read The Secret History of Twin Peaks by Mark Frost. Oh, yeah. Mm. So I'm picking up, the, and, and, I, and I also read a lot, of art, a lot of articles and interviews, and I saw Mark Frost speak that some of the stuff in the book isn't canon. Really? But some of the, yes, oh, some of geez. the stuff is. And actually, the things that aren't canon, one of the biggest things is that he has an alternate history for Big Ed, Nadine, Norma, and, and Hank, oh, which is very okay. interesting. But you do get a lot of background for the Packards and the Martells, and you get a, you get the history of um, Pete and Catherine's marriage and how they came to get together and how they came to fall apart. So seeing my my, my interesting observation for this particular rewatch was that dynamic and seeing what it could have been, what things, because we only, up until this point, we've only seen Pete and Catherine as they are, you know, currently and, you know, bitterly hating each other and miserable, but you kind of get a little window into what things were like when things were good in this one scene. Cool. All right. So my observation isn't quite as deep as that, but um, just that I noticed, speaking of keeping with the Packards, when Andrew's in the elevator with, with Mr. Eckhart, I noticed that he's wearing like a Sherlock Holmes jacket. Yeah, what the heck? <laughs> it was very like, and I get the sense like up to this up to this episode, Andrew Packard has been very kind of stoic, old man, businessman kind of thing. But with the glasses and the jacket, he's getting a little bit of flair that I kind of like. I'm kind of feeling it. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> he is oh. a little wonky in this episode. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, but then the last thing I noted was that during the board meeting at, uh, of the Horn uh, Industrial and uh, Comfort Corporation, uh, when we see Jerry talking about how the weasels are great roasted, I notice he's got a band aid in between. His eyes, his eyes, on the I bridge saw of his that nose. too. And like, it's just that's another little kind of thing that they never explain. Maybe he got a cut, who knows? But he's got a band. Maybe he on. was attacked by another chef. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> so, uh, a previous chef, he's been fighting with the chef all week. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> they, they fired that chef, and this chef has been fighting with them. Yep. It's very stressful for Jerry. Cool. So, those are some great observations. And now we're going to head over to the roadhouse for our uh, feedback segment where you can write into us at feedback at damn fine podcast. Let us know what you think of the show and your theories and questions and david g from boston writes in and he says i've been hey i'm from boston hey david oh wow look at that um so david says i probably don't know him (laughs) david says i've been thinking about my question on and off for about 
10 years now since I first saw Twin Peaks, and seriously, for at least 45 minutes a day since I started listening to you guys back in November. I've been refi- wow. I've been refining. No pressure, guys. <laughs> I've been re- refining it so much that I may have missed the best spot to ask with Leland's death a few a uh, few episodes ago. But here it goes. What, what do you guys think the fire walk with me walk with me poem does in universe? Mike seems to imply that it's a way to open oneself to spirit and habitation, but is it required? Does it open a way to the red room? It seems pretty straightforward at first. It's a way to put, to open oneself um, up and for the spirits, for the lack of a better term, to leave, as evidence when Bob leaves Leland. But then Bob appears later. Well, so spoiler. Mm. Bob yeah. appears later. <laughs> and, Surprise! And he, well, we saw we saw Bob in this sure. episode, yeah, exactly. right? So he yeah. does appear later. Yes. Just skip that next little exactly. bit, and then you're is, fine. Is Bob free to move about because he said the poem when possessing Leland? Um, he says thoughts. Is this an actual magic incantation, or just a turn of phrase to describe the relationship between our world and the Red Room? And he says, "I'll write you again in 25 years." Ah, nice. I like that. So uh, you, I think it's neither of those things, actually. Okay. Uh, I I think that the incantation is actually part of the mythology of the mythology. Okay. Does that yeah, make sense? Yeah, I, I take it as sort of a, like a sacred text. Is that where you're going? Yes. That, yes, that's exactly where I'm going. I don't think this actually does anything. I think I think that when people start saying saying the words, it's almost as if people uh, people that are Christian when they're in bad situations, them saying um, uh, the the whole the, the Lord's prayer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it's I think it's part of what the people in the mythology of the Red Room say. It's their own story about themselves, or it's a story that someone who has seen them has told about them. When Red Room children go to confession, they're told to say 12 firewalks with me. <laughs> because if you, I'm sure if you lay it out and you look at all the different times in, the, in both the show and in Firewalk with me that it's said, it doesn't always necessarily bring about anything. Sometimes it's observational, but it's almost always said unless, you know, it's the scene where Coop, you know, finds the Laura's kill site uh, and is reading the piece of paper, most of the time it's it's um, Mike that says it. And I, I think it's more him as an ex-member of that group of not demons or gods, but, but beings. And that's their own, it's their, it's their own mythology. Right. I, Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally makes yeah, sense. Yeah, I, I like that. No. Yeah, I, I, I kind of agree with that. I don't think it's an incantation <laughs> or a way to open the door, but I think that it's just kind of the colorful language of that world, you know? Yeah. Uh, yes. Or like a description of that world in, in, in poetic form, maybe. Right. Yes. As a girl who sleeps with her fire walk with me pillow every night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no joke. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, you can email us in at feedback at damnfinepodcast.com. Let us know your theories, what you think. Uh, and it's always great to hear from you. Thank you for that. Uh, so, Mallory, thank you so much for joining us. It's been great. This was so much fun. Hey. <laughs> and we'll, we're definitely going to want to have you on for season three to talk about the... the oh, my gosh, please. But, um, but so in the meantime, where can folks listening find you uh, out on the internet? Uh, I'm really easy to find online. You can find me at Sexoskeleton. That's Exoskeleton, but sexy, at both Twitter and Instagram. Uh, you can Google me, Mallory O'Mara. I've my, my blog is there. Um, I'm on Facebook. I'm on various reading websites like Litzy and Goodreads because I read all the time. And, yeah, that's the best place to find me. Great. Excellent. 
And you can find us on the social media. On Twitter, we're at DamnFineCast. And on Facebook, we're Facebook.com slash DamnFinePodcast. And if you'd like to support the show, if you'd like to become a citizen of Twin Peaks, you can go to Patreon.com slash DamnFinePodcast. And we thank all of our supporting patrons. Uh, We've got some really, really cool stuff planned out for May. I think next episode, Tom, we're going to detail out the month of May and explain what we're doing uh, for the show. So definitely. Oh, my God. Yeah. So 54 days, guys. I know. And if you you want to... uh, uh, get in on the coolest stuff going on in May. Make sure you're a patron. Go to patreon.com slash dm5podcast. we got some cool surprises planned for you. So uh, it's definitely going to be a fun time. So that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week or next time uh, for season two, episode 17, or episode 24, or episode 25 if you count the pilot. Uh, but, no, <laughs> but no matter what, it is the German title, Wounds and Scars. I'm uh, Tom. I'm Ron. I'm Ron.